it's a very hopeful thing that, that we're going to attempt here. Um, brave almost. There's a, there's a critic from this city right here called Daniel Mendelssohn. He wrote a book called How Beautiful It Is and How Easily It Can Be Broken. And, it, and just the title suggests something about the, the fragility of beauty, you know. Um, and that's something that I find true of poetry, of course. It's easy to make fun of, you know. Um, and it's something that's even more true of poetry readings, I think. And if anyone went to Alyssa Wilkinson's talk this morning, she had this great sort of diagram about the artist putting in a bit of attention to a thing. It was a star in her diagram that she made herself um, to make a work. And then the audience is, is supposed to lean on it with that same intensity to make it into art. It's like a, it's like a magic wand. That's why there's a star at the end of some of those my daughter has. Um, yeah, hard. Uh, so we're going to try to do that. They'll probably laugh every once in a while out in those other rooms and things like that, or the fan will blow on me, or who knows what is going to happen. Um, but it, it has always seemed to me like a spell of a kind. It's, it's Wingardium Leviosa, not Leviosa. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you say it wrong, it doesn't work. And that's, that's the thing that I've always thought about uh, poetry. Uniquely, because I, I, I teach novels and things like that and, and nonfiction essays um, in my, my day job. Um, and I forgive those people all kinds of things. <laughs> Writer, if you're reading a novel, even J.K. Rowling, to, to, <laughs> to bring it around again. Um, Dumbledore dead? How, what world is this possible in? And I think, okay, I think she's wrong, my, my ultimate point. And Harry does not marry, who is he supposed to marry? Ginny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I, all of her choices in the last book, I was like, that can't, you, you're ruining this thing that's, that's mine, right? Um, it's not, it's completely hers, right? I, um, but I forgive her. If there's, a, if there's a detail that's wrong or a line that's wrong, I think, oh, they're fine, they're fine. But what I, this is what I actually do when I go to bookstores and I'm looking for new poets or something like that. I, I get it and I go, yeah, yeah, okay, 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 okay. Nope. I read until I feel lied to or, or tricked or there's a single cheap observance or anything pedestrian at all. And I don't think that's fair of me. I'm, I'm not a particularly gracious person maybe, but it's, I don't know why it's a standard that that's not unique to me. I think a lot of people hold poetry to that standard. Like, like we're all just waiting. Is this for real? Are we going to get duped somehow? You know? And that's what I do. And the thing is, one of those makes not just that book no go for me. You, as a poet, are dead to me now. You said that one thing. This is, I mean, this conference is about grace <laughs> in divided times. But I... I I personally, and this is just one of my sort of many moral failings, but um, I don't have any of it for, for, for poems that aren't right. And that's true, that's true for mine too, which is to say that I got most of these poems to a place where I think they're right. They may still be wrong, right? They may have just absolute duds um, in them here and there, but, but some, some poems, I'm actually in a pretty good period right now where I'm finishing up things I've been working on for a long time. And for me, a long time is... Some of them are 18, 19 years old, and they've been sitting in draft for that long. And it's not like I forgot them. It's like when I'm laying in bed on Saturday morning, I'm like, these lines are haunting me. Like, I wish, oh, what could I, can I resolve that any better? Can I, no, I'm not strong enough. Maybe I'll try again. And then next week, I'll try again. I'll just, I'm walking, and it's, no, I still don't have it. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not there. Come on in if you want, to, or the doorway is fine too. Checking out the tech, is everything on? I think so. There's this connected to me. Perfect. That's, is that all you need? Yeah, and that's on. All right. I need this, man. Carry on. And these fine people. <laughs> you see what I mean about interruptions? People will just come on in. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to read you. I made this book called Phases. It turned a year old, like last week. It, it just had its first birthday. Um, like my son who also turned a year old around. And I thought this was curious. I put out a chat book before this on Finishing Line Press, and its publication coincided with my daughter's birth. And then I put up the full-length collection, and its publication coincided with my son's birth. 
like she was working on something great, so I thought like I, I probably ought to have something to show for myself. Um, anyways. Uh, and the next one is almost done. I've just um, sent it around to some publishers. Uh, I'll let you know if, uh, when it when it's breathes first. No more kids planned. We'll see what she does to catch up. Uh, it's broken up into sections um, named for the, for not the phases of the moon, the, the sections of the moon from the map that Galileo made. And for a scientist, this guy had a, the most wonderful poetic sense, it seems to me. He, he named all these little dumb ridges and squirrelies that he must have seen through his terrible telescope that he made in his garage, right? And he named them like, sea that has become known. And these, these sort of vague and, but lovely abstractions. Um, maybe that's what poems are, these vague and lovely abstractions seen through these. Uh, so I named my book, I, I, I sectioned it off with the, those same terms, and I grouped the poems under those headings. What I, what I actually did is I, I got a room, and I took a stack of poems that I made, and I had a friend of mine uh, who's better at organizing things than I am, and we tacked up those titles all over the room, and we tried to get the poems like, that doesn't belong there, it belongs over there. And then I fought like a tiger with my editor over <laughs> both the groupings and for the lives of some of the poems. I'll read a couple of them to you. Um, maybe I'll try to read one from each section, and then you'll have a sense of how it moves. Mm -hmm. um, when you have, have questions, you should ask them. I don't, uh, may, wait, maybe wait till the poem is over, any individual one. But like, uh, I, I've never liked it when I, when I think of something, you said a thing in a poem, and it bothered me, or it intrigued me, or whatever, and you have to hold that while these other epiphanies are happening you know, for 20 minutes, that's no fun. So if there's anything you feel like knowing about me or my work or these poems or those images or anything, just feel free after the thing's over to, we can just have a conversation, yeah? Sometimes I say that to people and they still don't, they don't feel brave, so it's, we'll have a proper Q&A at the end if you like. The first, um, the first one I'll read is the first poem in the book. It's called Pastoral because on the opening night here, someone referenced, what was it, sheep teeth? Right? It was not a thing I'd ever thought of before. Um, and this poem's about us as sheep. And actually, I made it when I was sitting in that guy's church. I started making it when I was sitting in his church. He used to have one in Canada. Um, and I wasn't, that's Reverend Dr. Jim Saladin. Um, Where in Canada? Yeah, St. John Shaughnessy in Vancouver. Um, and I wasn't paying attention because. I, I'm me. And so I was taking notes, though, instead. I was kind of paying attention I t in the way that I do. I, t I scribble things down, and that's how I pay attention. Um, and I wrote down a line that, that he said, and it's the first two lines of this, uh, uh, turned into the first two lines of this poem. Forgive me. Yes. Dude, that was just in the right time. <laughs> I knew we were going to get in trouble. Uh, pastoral. Let us not overlook, he says, looking out over us from the lectern like a shepherd with a crook of words bent on folding us back into our pen or penning us back into our fold, the stupidity and defenselessness of sheep. We bleat. In this analogy, who are we? He proceeds, goats, you see, can handle themselves. Horns and hooves, cranial helmets, they ram full tilt into posts or other goats. But sheep, mind you, sheep have no homing device, which is why stories begin with a lost one. They're even known to head toward danger. Oh, look, a wolf. Let's check it out. <laughs> In dumb allegiance to the interesting, which I find interesting, and think, how to amend our sheepish ways. But he, to drive home both the point and, oh ye, sighs, it's beyond you, beyond me. I love that moment when I go to, I don't go to fancy churches like this one. I, I, I usually go to churches that meet in basketball gyms and things like that, uh, upstarts. I don't like that. I wish I went one with tracery and a proper lectern and things like that. But the kinds of churches I always find myself in are borrowing space or in a, a storefront or something like that. Um, and so I, 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 I love that moment 
theatrically speaking, in churches that have a rose window behind them, right? You go out, and you don't ever see it. It's back there. It's the best thing in the church. And the only the guy speaking gets to see it. That doesn't seem right. And I railed at the injustice of the universe when I was in like, everyone's going to disapprove if I'm. But of course, you go up and you have communion. And with it still on your tongue, you turn. And all that light and all that color, right? It's beyond you. It's beyond me, you know, that. Um, yeah, all right, here's, there's, there's, a, there's a thing called the Boca della Verita in Rome. I teach in Rome every other summer. I lead a group of students over there. Um, you probably know this thing, if you know it at all, from Roman Holiday, that movie with Audrey Hepburn and that, yeah? Uh, the idea is it's a, it's, a, it's a big stone circle, like that, but way bigger. Um, and it's got a face in it, and the idea is you put your hand in it, and then you, you say something, and if you lie, it's boca della verita, the mouth of truth. And if you lie, it cuts your hand off. It's like one of those two-way mirrors. There's, there's someone on the other side, I think, was the idea, and they could just scare you and kind of, you know, get, or maybe it used to work. Maybe there was a person who was back there judging, and, nah, it's not right. <laughs> if it happened to one person, the legend would have carried on to us, right? It, but why make it up if it never happened at all? So what you, what you see now is it, it's gotten more popular in the last 10 years, even since I started going, taking kids to Rome, um, is a line of tourists waiting to tell a lie. Because that's what they do. They go, when's my turn? And they try to think of something. You could see them working on it. What am I going to say that's false? And what will the consequences be? The weird thing is it's just broken. It's bigger than my arm span, and it weighs four tons, and it's broken right down this, like a temple veil or something. I don't know. Um, but they tried to put it back together to make it still like the magic was still there. This a lie, their hands. Here's the spot they stitched the coin of his face back into itself. You can trace with your finger the rough splice running over his eye, where someone tried to make it look as though the circle hadn't broken, that truth was still spoken from the mouth thereof. And people hadn't lined up to tell a lie, their hands shoved down his throat. It says something about our senses of restoration, no? And something else about the past. What exactly? Ask. How you doing? Good. Yeah, I know, right? No, yeah, it's... There's Lee Young Lee again. I'm thinking about him this week because I just got his new book. It came out. Um, he always claps after his own. He'll read it. And like a child, like with glee, it's, yay. <laughs> but it's, it makes it feel okay to do, you know, as an audience. Don't, I don't want this to clap until the end. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, uh, okay, here's, you've heard this phrase about the banality of evil. It's boring, weirdly. Um, Someone, some people's job is to sort of oppress people. It has been. The, the, people, the people who had to whip Jesus were just going to work. They didn't hate him. They didn't even know him, right? You got to whip that guy and then whip the other guy. Try not to kill him because it's less of a show. And then you have lunch. You do two more. Walk home. Kiss the wife. Try to go to sleep. Do you know what I mean? And then, like, that sucks as a job. To, the next day, you have to do it, too. I threw up my shoulder on that Palestinian. What, you know, like, it's a job for some people. That's, in, that's, that's the world that we made somehow. Um, that's one part of this poem. Sidereal characters in Caravaggio paintings. The other thing that you have to know is I just mean, I mean this. You know Caravaggio, his, his paintings are in Rome. And he's always got some figure in the background going... Oh my gosh, right? <laughs> feeling what we're feeling on our behalf so we don't feel weird feeling that. You know, clapping. But in a different way. Sidereal characters and Caravaggio paintings. To say I threw my hands up all a flutter seeing what was taking place implies pigeons shot, if only by a shudder. But there they were. 
meaty butterflies reflecting light back to an offstage source in an action that says, ho there, to a frightened horse. My back reeled back, a jumping fish offended by anguish. The hair on my neck stood high, but basically I stood by and watched him hurt. No one says you have to like it. That's why they call it work. Well, this is a weird book to try to pitch because I was, Cascade is, is a, a Christian press that it's on, um, but I, I hadn't thought about myself as a, as a, I'm a Christian and a poet, but I, hadn't, I don't do a lot of that kind of work. I, I tend not to publish in those sorts of places, a thing in Christian century here or there or something, but um, Image Magazine keeps rejecting my stuff. So I just thought, oh, okay, that's not for me. I'll just publish in the Rio Grande Review and wherever, these, these sort of normal places, secular places. And then I send in a manuscript to, to these people at Cascade, mainly because I'm in the Northwest and I'm sort of in love with it. Um, the Northwest, not Cascade Books. And, um, and they, they accepted the manuscript, and then I changed all the poems. Uh, I said, great, we have an accord. <laughs> now how about these instead? And, and they asked me to put in all my churchy poems. And I started thinking about my career a little differently all of a sudden. Because I didn't want to, uh, so I don't know if you know what Image Magazine is, but I, I'm teaching from an issue of that right now, a research writing in the humanities. And we go through the entire issue, all the sculptural criticism and short stories and whatever that they, they were going to write about is that, that's what I assigned. And we did a poem on Tuesday in class. And it starts, I teach at Seattle Pacific University. And those people, there's, there's some Muslims in my class, and there's half of them are atheists, and it's not like a, a robustly evangelical kind of place, yeah. The poem I sign starts out, triune God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I asked the class, I'm like, how, how did you take this? How did you even read this poem if you don't think that? How does a Jew read that poem? Image is a trans faith journal. It's intentionally broadly religious, not specifically Christian. They, they court Jews, for example, and, and Buddhists, and they, they publish them in there. Triune God. I think, all right, you, you lost us by the first word, not even the second word. Do you know what I mean? Like, at and we're done. I can't. You just divided your audience cleanly, right? I don't know. That's not wrong. There are, there are audiences for whom that's perfect and appropriate and helpful, right? But the next stanza started something like maker of the stars. And I was thinking, well, why don't you just put that there? And then at least you get them for a while <laughs> before smacking them with the old, you know, one, two, three punch. <laughs> um, anyway, so, I, so I'm trying to sort of toe this line, which is not a good idea, because it's not Christian enough for some people, right? And it's too Christian for, for some other people. That's most of the bands I like. <laughs> toe that exact, and they're always making somebody angry. Um, uh, there's a section, it got a lot smaller um, through the editing process called The Sea of Alexander von Humboldt. Uh, von Humboldt is um, a trans-European figure. He was one of the like, men of letters that went, he matters to a lot of countries, uh, yay though he was German, German himself. So my translations fall under that. Um, so I'll read one of these translations from a poet uh, dear to me called Giacomo Leopardi. Um, I'll do this one uh, to his heart. Be you quiet now, thing. The last lie you served me I swallowed, but it is gone now, stricken entirely. The one thing I see is our hope exhausted, our hunger for the illusion that these surfaces will support us, but also our hunger for their hardening in the first place. Hush. Rest. You work yourself up. There is nothing worth all that beating. And you spill care like blood. For what? Life is always and only bitterness and tedium. The world is mud. Be quiet. Despair, finally. To us, to us all, fate has left only dying. Disprise then that nature, the brutal power ruling this commune of pain and everything else which is vain. Well, that was a bit of a downer, wasn't it? Grim. Grim, that way. 
if you were if you if you were trying to figure out who the saddest person that ever lived was, Leopardi would make the short list. That man that man just just struggled. I'm not sure if that's a translation. I read his poem. I liked it. And I tried to make one that was kind of like it. If you know Leopardi and you read other translations, you'd be like, ah, does it say that? And I would be open to that criticism. That's, that's how I translate things anymore. Um, is it? Not Wittgenstein. Who said this? No translation of a lyric work is ever possible. The best one can do is approximate in a different language the images from the other. And I started believing that, like, really, really. <laughs> and so I'm, I don't even try anymore. I read <laughs> that line, and uh, it's kind of. Kind of in the ballpark. I don't feel comfortable calling it mine, but no one who knows it would feel comfortable owning it either. These lines, right? Yemen. Yeah, I have a divinity degree. I have a bachelor's degree. Yeah. And I often, I often wish that the poet could sit with me to explain, like you're doing now. Yeah. Pretty imposed what's happening. And I wonder if I missed so much of this. Strong poetry because I don't, I don't have the grammar or the logic. Right. The rhetoric's coming at me so quick, and I'll read it a second time. Maybe a line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will, will stick, you know, will hook me. Right. But I, like, I almost wish poets would just do like an annotation. Like, but then it becomes yeah. rational. Because if you're telling me this is a wheel I saw in Rome, and right, right, right. But if I don't know these things. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, like, I've been to Rome, and I've seen the wheel, and I put my yeah. hand in. My son, though, hasn't been to Rome. And I bet we had a different experience. Of reading that poem. poem, sure. And yet, if you would have explained um, what we did explain to him, because you're here, you're embodied. And right, I right. just wonder if I look at a lot of poetry, and if I don't have an annotation or a summary of explanation so that now it starts to hit me, so it right. turn into a question. How can I pick up a good poem? Oh, right. Who didn't give me an annotation and not have the sort of mm -hmm. arrogance to say, oh, this is a very good poem? It didn't mean anything to Sure, 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 sure. It, well, first of all, it's possible that we're doing this all wrong. Like, poetry used to be an embodied thing. You would never hear a poem unless you met the poet. Do you know what I mean? Like, for, for most of time, you go to hear someone recite. You don't read it, that'd be weird. It's like taking someone else's thing, right? Um, so, so your difficulties are, are real and not individual to you, right? Um, I, I would say, though, that, that a, this is tricky, but a good poet, part of the job is to make herself known through the thing. The thing is supposed to be adequate. That's one of the rules that we play by. The thing has to be able to work for someone who wasn't there and doesn't even know the context necessarily. There's supposed to be enough contextual clues to where a good reader can read it well. Is that C.S. Lewis's phrase? A good reader can, to, can give it a good reading. Right. That has to be possible. It's like a mystery. There are rules, like if you don't drop the hints alongside and, and you just come up with this twist at the end. Like that wasn't, you cheated. And that's sort of supposed to be in um, every poem. Some people are walking around here with a sticker that says slow anthropology on it. Have you seen that? I'm not 100% sure what that means. I'm not 80% sure what that means. I kind of like it, though, and I, I think poetry's a sucker's game, partly because the timeline is so long. Um, some poems we're just getting around to understanding now that were written in the 1850s, um, which is to say they have to marinate. And here's the other thing. This is just a practical tip for, for me. Now, I, it's asking ridiculous things. Uh, but every poem that I've memorized, I know in a way I know nothing else. Every poem I've written down in my hand, I know better than every poem I've, I've read. And any poem I've memorized becomes part of my life. And maybe that's what they're for. Do you know what I mean? Maybe this is, this is not a thing you're supposed to read. I've never known how to read poetry books. What are you supposed to just sit there and then I, I could do this in a sitting, but I feel like I haven't done it right if I do that. Do you know what I mean? I read till I'm full. I read ten poems in. I'm like, okay, that's enough sparks. That's enough action for me for a while. Let me come back to it in two weeks when I, you know. Or or the sections? Is that what they're there for? Let me read section one tonight. 
<laughs> Maybe tomorrow I'll read section two. You know, I don't know how they're supposed to work. There's too much intensity for... I read, I read the, the Half-Blood Prince in 30 hours, I think. How is that possible? You know, and I can't do this for, what, 25 minutes, usually? That's my threshold? I don't know, man. Sea of Crisis is, is uh, the next section. And um, gracious, I don't know. What do you want to hear? This. Yeah, man, yeah. So I, I, I like what you just talking about the purpose of the poem being to make the poet known. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that resonates a little bit. I was just thinking about something that uh, Emerson, uh, the fine poet, as, yeah. uh, the real poem is in the poet's mind. Right, right. So it's in these, the sensibility, and the aesthetics vary. Yeah. So you, know, you pick up one, one poet that's just, you know, I don't dress like you. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, it, it's, it's a strange kind of art where we believe it exists already and we just sort of find it. That's how poets talk. You got inspired. The people ask questions like, where'd that come from? What do you mean? Yeah. I made it with my little pencil. Like, but that's what we, what, an angel spoke into my ear. I, it was a fish. I found it in the river. What are you, what are you saying? But we, we think that the poem existed and our job was just to kind of uncover it somehow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's got to be something there. There's gold in them dark hills, right? That's the phrase, and you're like, I, but I didn't. It didn't twinkle for me. It didn't. Am I am I doing it wrong, or was it a dud? And you get enough of those, and you stop believing that there's any gold. I think that's why more people don't read poetry because they tried a couple times and it. They smacked it with a hammer, and it didn't go ring. It went clunk, and they thought this hammer's broken, or this bell. No. As a poet, is that a wonderful way to express to the frustration of the world or something? Hmm. To, it seems that's what my son's touching on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This anger or frustration. Right. He said, I'm going to try to use the vehicle of poetry yeah, to yeah. express it. Well, that's, it's, that's why it's often used for therapy. Yeah, it, it works that way. Although, not, for me anyways, as an expressive medium, but as something else to punch against. Now, if I take to Twitter and I do the same thing, I make enemies really quickly. And if I do it in my hallway, it's even quicker, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I can, I, can, I can bite down on the fact that the world isn't perfect in a poetic space. And then you're reaching that beauty. Yeah, yeah. for years. How do I make this thing? How do I conform the world to my image, whatever I'm trying to do? How do I create the thing as good as it was for me to experience, and that feels like hammering. It feels like Hephaestus, you know what I mean? And it can take it. I can swing and swing and swing, and, I, and if it doesn't work, hey, no problem. Nobody's mad at me, yeah. you know? Yeah, right, because I think there's something there still. I mean, or maybe I think they're my children, you know what I mean? It's, uh, well, I made it. I, it's ugly, but I can't help but love it. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? It, it, it's ill-behaved. It's not cooperating. <laughs> like, now as a parent, I realize how deeply those emotions go, right? But I, I find it very hard to abandon things. Um, but they haunt me when they go wrong. Like, if I got one that's to finished, but it's still, I don't, don't think it's good, I'll, I'm still doing some from seventh grade. I play the lines over in my head. I'm like, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you created that awfulness. <laughs> in the world. I didn't show it to anybody, I didn't publish or anything, but I still did it. I, I made something wrong. I missed a mark, you know? Hey, so can you talk a little bit, you talked about uh, your work with Cascade Press. Yeah. How did that, I was curious, and I didn't want to save it for the Q&A at the end. Yeah, yeah, no worries, man. Um, so how did that create a shift at all? Because you're talking about poets' frustration and deep. Yeah. But I think your point about audience and purpose and intention. Right. And, you know, to think about art for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the authenticity of the voice. Right, right. Sometimes there's no frustration in something that's pure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it feels right. Or you can't see it anymore. The, the surface is too burnished. Or it and just gets it out there. It's a thing of beauty that you yeah. just you've been imbued with, you know, with love right. and affection. So to that, um, 
Your work with Cascade, how did you shift as a yeah. poet if you did? This, that was interesting, and uh, D.S. Martin, if you're watching this, I love you, you're a great editor. Um, but I, so, so this, he wrote me, so this is strange, There's a, it's a professional outfit, right? There's an acquisitions editor who makes some decisions, and they pass it on to the editor of the series, this is the Poema series that mine is on. Um, and, and then you work with them for a while, and then you send it off to a copy editor who decides if things are spelled right and they look right on the page and that kind of stuff. So there's a team of people, and someone else designs a cover and all that. I didn't get any input on the cover. It came out okay in the end, thank goodness. But they my contract specifically said, don't offer us any advice about the cover. We make those decisions in-house. Um, so the acquisitions editor said, this is great. We'll take it. We want to publish it. Work with this guy to, to touch it up. And then Martin says to me, okay, this is unlike anything we've ever published before. I don't know even how to approach most of these poems. Um, a lot of them are kind of academic. I'm an academic. What am I going to do? It's, I'm just being honest. I'm not trying to be fancy. Um, they're, they're kind of academic. They're kind of more focused on aesthetic than sort of a didactic. Whatever. Like, I, don't even know what, I don't even know what they mean, and I'm a poetry editor as my job. No one will get this. <laughs> and I was like, OK, thanks for not holding back, man. This is my first book. I don't know. Um, and then, and then he, what, he, what he made me do was explain, which is to say defend every line. He said, this is going to take a long time, and you're going to need to explain a lot to me. So he says, we'll, take, we'll try to do five poems a month or so. And I'll, I'll say what I think they mean, and I want to know if I'm right. And if I don't understand something, I'm going to need you to justify it. And that was a super strange process for me. Because when do you don't do that? This is a poem. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean what I wrote. That's why I wrote it, you know? Um, and so we had a lot of back and forth where, where he'd, he'd usually start with something like, this isn't going to make any sense to anyone that read it. And I'd take it down in my hallway, and I'd show it to three people. Does this make any sense to you? And they're like, oh, yeah, great poem. Like, OK. Or this was published in a journal, and then that journal republished it in like a best of collection. So some people it made some sense to. like. You can't say this is, is nonsense. It, it, it. And so I, we, were, we were going like that, back and forth, hammer and tongs, right? Um, and what a part of those emails became, in, in answer to your question, actually, my book has uh, an appendix that's notes on the poems, which is unusual. I've never seen a poem book that has one of those. Maybe some of them do. Um, but I just felt like the, a lot of those are just bits of our emails. So what we've settled on, a lot of times I just yank the poem. I said, you know what, I can't defend this one anymore. I think it's great, and I'm not changing it. I'm going to put it in this pile over here. We'll put it in the next book. Look out for the next book. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and, it's, and then someone was like, well, you need to put some kind of a statement because no one's going to know what you're talking about if you don't. So I was like, I've already written it to you in an email. Let me just put some of that language in this. And that became an entire notes section to the book, which uh, creates an interesting reading experience. right? You can try it through, straight. And if it doesn't make a lick of sense to you, you can look and see if there's a note. Maybe it's, aha! Or maybe it's, well, now I'm just more confused, as one reviewer said. Um, <laughs> one of them was like, it's, it's great, but the note section in the back, what was he thinking? <laughs> First of all, I wasn't thinking anything. <laughs> Anyways. Shall we read some more? Um, oh, here's one, here's one about um, inspiration. The, uh, the gestures, the one we make at, at communion, depending on the kind of church that you go to. See that shape? Ode to inspiration. And the thing about inspiration is it can't be constant, or it's not inspiration. It's something that breathes in and goes back out necessarily, right? At times, you had the hinges of our hands bent back like bird beaks, or we had them, hoping you'd seen the bone shapes of our runes heard our druidic murmur, remembered your role, or forgotten it, and come by. At other times, you were spooning peas onto our plates, so the piles sloped and spread out, rolling pearls of old skin. We dipped our little mouths down to catch them in, cupped our cold hands around the pile like a fire, anything from you, spark who so recently had us rubbing sticks together. I guess that reminds me of Grace. 
Now my job is to set the logs there and to trust that someone will come. I, and I do these things. This is not resulting in fire. What's going on, <laughs> right? Um, the next section is the, the sea of crisis. Oh, here's one that's kind of um, political. We're not being shy, apparently, at this conference. They started off last night. So, Trump, eh? So, Kanye West. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, Tyrannus. Do you know that, that Oedipus Rex is misnamed? There's two kinds of, there's two kinds of king in, in ancient Greece. A Rex, from which we get Roy and Royal. Yeah? Rex. Uh, that's a proper king, one who inherits in the normal way. And then there's a tyrannus, which is not necessarily a tyrant, although that's where the word comes from. It's anyone who becomes a king through any other means. You win it in a contest. You're part of an invading army. We had to find a cousin. Like, you're not the normal a tyrannus. So Oedipus Rex should be called Oedipus Tyrannus, because he's, he's not. Uh, this will be the last ship Oedipus Rex, declares Creon. Eternally aware, as unheeded advisors are, of the mess his boss has ma had made. But he's wrong. There's one more, plunging heart and stern long into the great granite stones of fate. With a force incommensurate even to his own strong counsel and the king's due. The ship of state, such a popular visual tool with the late medieval political set, is getting its start as a symbol here. In this argument, in this room, where both men attempt to steer away from the so obviously impending doom and manage only to hasten its day, put a face on the loss, and go down with the crew. I wrote that after 9-11, um, maybe 03 or something like that. Here's a poem from my friend Scott. Can I read you one of these? Do you know Scott Cairns? Man, he's a great poet. He's just become my colleague when we hired him at Seattle Pacific from Missouri or wherever he used to be before. Um, and I've, I've known his poems for a long time. Uh, he, he's, but we've just now become friends. But he's, he's my master in some ways. I like the way that he gets the balance. He does it. He pulls it off. <laughs> and I think this is a template, actually. I think it's a way... It's a way that deeply Christian poetry could be significant for people who are not themselves deeply Christian, or even marginally Christian. This is called on slow learning. I don't know. If you're a pagan in here, you could tell us what, how it feels. <laughs> I mean, what, not, not to be a pagan, but a, a poem like this. If you have ever owned a tortoise, you already know how difficult paper training can be for some pets. <laughs> Even if you get so far as to instill in your tortoise the value of achieving the paper, <laughs> there remains one obstacle, your tortoise's intrinsic sloth. Even a well-intentioned tortoise may find himself in his journeys to be painfully far from the mark. <laughs> Failing, your tortoise may shy away for weeks within his shell, utterly ashamed, or looking up with tiny Wet eyes might offer an honest shrug. Forgive him. <laughs> it's so perfect. It's so touching. It's, but you can see, right? I did it again. But who of us hasn't worn that face? I, I was going to, it just fell. I didn't know. Oh. Achieving the paper. Oh, gosh. Where do you get phrases like that? Yeah. I think it's trying to be something more than anything else. A poem wants to have an existence. Uh, I think that's independent of its maker, actually. 
like we all of us do. Um, I think the main thing it wants is to feel like it can breathe. Um, and it, well, given its life, it, it, can, it might tell things mainly, and it might show things mainly, and it might just dazzle, and it might woo, it might do any number of things, right? Um, but I think its first concern is, I think that division is downstream, I guess. But upstream from that is, is, the, is a sense of reality. And we know that, and not reality, not, not like, oh, it was blue, no, it was baby blue. I don't mean like accuracy, right? I mean life. I think that's why we say inspired. It was breathed in. They were, they were bones, and then it got breathed in. Uh, what else? Does it, does it need to be read or heard? It, yeah, that's what, what I was not sure about that. This Alyssa Wilkinson character said, that's her name, right? Yeah. She said, um, that a, a thing made, a made thing, needs an audience in order to be a work of art. Doesn't count as a work of art until someone encounters it and leans back on it. I don't know. Is that right? I mean, there's poems in my journals that no one's read. Given yeah. Like, and the poems not the audience. Yeah, right, right, right. Maybe it's unfair for us, right? Because can, you can read them again. Or you've memorized them, you can say them, so you count as the audience too. Poems do teach us. That's a thing. I've made poems that are smarter than me by a long way. I'm not equal to that. I made a thing, and then now I'm like, now teach me wise one. <laughs> yeah, that, there's that feeling sometimes that it's, it's got more intelligence than. It just feels like every like every time it's read, it's created anew. Like every time it's yeah. heard, and each person listening. Yeah. There's yeah. A, there's an act of creation. Yeah, that's right. And then, I mean, for me, it's, my native language is film, but. Right. Every time somebody watches, and each person who watches the film, it's not my film, it's, yeah. it becomes their film. Yeah, of course. Watch it, it's your Which is why you don't mess with it and make prequels or anything ridiculous like that, because right, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's theirs. It's a sacred thing, right? Yeah, but, right. Um, but also, it doesn't matter what the director says it is or you know, what anyone right. even intended in some ways. It's now your film. What, you, what happened to it? That actually... You created as it was seen. You know, I think yeah. There's something there. This is, this is one of the, the interesting debates in literary history. You know Gerard Manley Hopkins? The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. 1880s or so, he's writing. Nobody reads it because he's a monk and not really allowed to publish these things, except he sends it in a letter to a friend. We don't discover it till the 1920s. So is he a modernist poet? writing in that radical modernist way and in the 1920s when you're supposed to be if you're a good modernist? Or is he a Victorian poet who's prescient, but he had no effect on the Victorian literature world or the world at all? Zero. You see what I mean? Where do we... His influence only makes sense over here when he was dead for 40 years. Maybe it needs the audience to be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately we all do it for ourselves. I'm an artist, and I write. Yeah. Really. Yeah. No. No kidding. No kidding. That's exactly right. That's the thing about artists that I think people who are an artist generally have a hard time understanding. I'm not going to get famous from this. I'm definitely not going to get rich from this, right? I don't even need to show anyone to feel the complete satisfaction that I did it. I I go I write poems early before I teach and things like that. I'll go to my office. And, and I'll work for a couple hours. And if that's a day, I don't finish one every day by any means. <laughs> if I get one a month, it's good. I'll, if I finish one, I just walk away from the table. And I, that whole day, it's just, nobody knows what I did this morning. <laughs> like, I, I, I hit one out of the park this morning. And nobody cheered. But I still did it, you know? Or at least I wrapped it up. And it, it's, this, it's not a different feeling. Someone reads it, and they go, that's the best poem. I think, well, great, man. I mean, yeah, of course. You appreciate it also, but, <laughs> but I do too. In the, it's not, there's no reception that's important I'm for me. Yeah, 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 usually. Yeah, well, probably not yours. Yours are probably fine. <laughs> but when I try to do the same thing, I know what you mean. Yeah. Here's a gift to you. Someone, someone at, at this very conference, I won't name names, but said, here, don't just sign my book. Can you write an original poem in it? What kind of prey? I just produced it. I'm a symbol monkey. I'll just do it on to. 
fine. Push this button, I can kick him out. <laughs> I did something. I did, yeah. It's called the symbol monkey. Yeah, okay. Um, here's one about trying to, trying to feel rightly ordered. Um, about trying to feel bad for something you should feel bad about. I'm too quick to forgive myself. Maybe that's not a problem that most people have. Um, but when I do something wrong, I'm like, yeah, it wasn't that bad. And somebody else slights me, kind of, and I think, you monster, right? Um, but we also sweet the sin and bitter the taste, right? You deserve a better apology, is what this one's called. When I come back smelling like what God knows, which must be everything, I consider briefly a bath as courtesy and as hygiene before I crash, open-lipped at the pillow, but bag it. I smoke, but it's not a habit, and if my tongue tastes like ash, I'll spit. Who hasn't skipped brushing or breakfast when drunk or rushing? Last time I spilled my last chance on a bar floor and danced <laughs> through it with strangers till sticky it made me feel sorry, icky, and vow not to repeat it. Promise replete with nixing a kind of cologne. It's having grown nauseating since through mix and proximity. I grin. Wallow, in a sense, while sheets take the shattered print of my frame. Sweat-soaked, bereft of the shame I should be bringing to bed with me, but which I can't carry, slumped as I am still under the weight of fine spirits. Soon, this will sound more like remorse. I can't wait for you to hear it. We could do a couple more, and I'll, I'll have fulfilled my promise about the sections. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Here's one. Here, how about this? Um, you familiar with this tradition? Is it, is, it, is it King Nebuchadnezzar who had the royal taster that he didn't get along well with? No. Yeah. This is faint. Um, you're, you're familiar with this thing about royal tasters. There'd be someone who would try the king's food before to make sure that he wasn't poisoned. Nehemiah? Mm. This is off. Who? Was Pharaoh the, the royal taster for, for him? And he got into his trust because of... Yeah. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar crawls around like William Blake said. Yeah, that's right. Um, they used to taste that thing, and, and they go... They, they're the artists. They go forward. They, they try the thing to see if it's awful, you know what I mean, or deadly, before the rest of us have to be bothered with it, or the, the king anyway. Um, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes it's awful. And so there's a, there's a person you have to know. It won't make any sense. Apollinaire is a French poet. And he made these poem books where he messed around with font and typography. And some people like him. He's got a great little fan club and things. I think he's awful. And it'll be like the whole page is just a big A. And then there's like some really small words you can barely read, and it's frustrating. And one of them goes up and down. You know what I mean? You're like, okay, that's neat, but I, I mean, now none of us have to do that because you. <laughs> Eat your own tail, royal taster. You know who you are. You're the one who tries it first, so we all know it doesn't work. The poet said to Apollinaire, "Croak if you're gonna." Drown in the air. Seriously, none of us care. Goat on a tether, you clacked your black hooves across the temple floor. And if the holy strikes you lifeless, fine. That's no less useful to know. Tells us at least where we shouldn't go. Amateur charioteer, we're sick of the sunburn. Why don't you drop out of the sky? And if you mean to stay in that oven, would you mind? Get reborn a bird. Peck up the bread trail you left like a blessing behind. This feels like you're, this is me just indulging one of my hatreds. You know what I mean? It, it feels therapeutic. Like that guy has always bothered me with his fame and many books and weird big A's. <laughs> and now I get to do something about it, right? In this, in this, in this small kind of space, yeah? Um, uh, and then I'll read you a, a new poem, and then we'll just chat for a couple of minutes, and that'll be that. Yeah, I've got, I've got some new stuff coming out here, and I, uh, 
If you subscribe to the St. Catharines Review, four of these appear in this month's um, installation thereof. Okay, yeah, here. I have a, a, a poem in this book called An Advent. And it's about, it's about um, startling beauty revealing the face of God. Um, whatever kind it is. Uh, and then I was thinking, we just had Advent. I just got a book of common prayer for the first time. Now, some of you, maybe this is weird because you grew up with it and it's existed since the 1600s. But I just got a hold of one, and this is my first year doing the daily readings in my whole life. And it's working. I'm starting to think, like, I'm not 100% sure what month it is, but I know it's Easter 5. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm on the weeks that... <clears throat> uh, so Advent was more pregnant, is the actual word, for me this year than it's ever been before because that season of waiting I built into the rhythms of my life. Um, but then, and then when it happened, I, I, I felt, well, well, I'm still waiting for something. Why do I still feel in waiting mode? Shouldn't I be... Shouldn't I be hallelujah? Oh, the whole, I get to say a hallelujah at the end of the thing for those of because now it's... But um, after Easter, anyway. Um, but then I realize just part of me, it's biomechanically. I'm waiting for, for spring. Um, and that's another kind of advent, yeah? And I feel it. The whole world feels it, obviously. In the same way we long for Christ's coming or the same way we long yearly for, for Christmas and the birth of the Christ child, right? Uh, the, the world is longing for spring, it seems like, anyways. So this is another Advent, this, this poem is called. Come crack the frozen branch ends that have had you so long penned up, as in winter trap, snowdrift, tree sap. Have the whole earth heave and scream at your verdant birth. Bring in your train the bright green lips of leaves, the lengthening day, the suggestion of sex, a mess. Wreck the hard and frostbitten ground with your trillion shoots. Break through. Crown. Come in like a tooth into a world sore, into the ache. Come save the stupid, drooped stems of our hearts before they wilt by the earth's cataclysmic tilt, primavera, evergreen hope, get here. Thanks, crew. That's all I'm trying to do for now. Yeah.